0: Today is December 20th, 2020. Welcome to the 22nd episode of Below Zero, a podcast about Buffalo from Buffalo. I'm Adam, and I'm going to bring you the latest Buffalo happenings, including sports, politics, music, and everything else in Western New York life. So, hope everybody enjoyed the Bills game last night. I know I did. I put out a quick little Snap Reactions Patreon episode, so if you want to listen to my immediate... Thoughts on the game from last night, you can go to our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash B-L-O-Z-E-R-O podcast. And for as little as a dollar, you can hear all the things I had to say about it. Very, very fun there. So lots of news this week I want to get to. Uh, Number one is Buffalo Niagara rocked by second wave of job losses. And this was kind of something that we were going to expect with with winter coming and with, with the areas getting shut down again, going into yellow and then orange zones, they're shutting down businesses just as a result of that. And so people lose their jobs again. So this is by David Robinson, Buffalo News. Second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic is causing a second wave of job losses across the Buffalo, Niagara region. It is not nearly as severe as the catastrophic job losses that the region suffered during the first wave, when much of the economy shut down for weeks. But over the past three weeks, ever since the state imposed new orange zone limits on businesses across much of Erie County and yellow zone rules on parts of Niagara County, nearly 15,400 local workers have lost their jobs. That means the number of people losing their jobs during the second wave of the pandemic is almost double the already elevated pace of job losses during the lull in COVID-19 cases this summer and in early fall. It also means that the region's slow recovery from the spring lockdown has ended long before the jobs lost during the first wave were recovered and that the decline has started anew. New data shows that the job market's recovery was only about three-quarters of the way back, when the Cuomo administration imposed the latest orange zone restrictions last month. This has been a concern for a while. Something that I've been pointing out is this region obviously lost thousands of jobs starting back in March and April. And at one point, they were estimating that maybe 40 to 50% of them were never going to come back. Now, according to this, they had some new data showing that about three-quarters of the recovery had, had happened, but that's still a fourth of, of the loss that had not been fixed yet, and now there's 15,400 new unemployed people. So we are down about 40,000 jobs from where we were a year ago. That's a lot, and since the November jobs report is based on data collected during the middle of the month before the orange zone restrictions took effect, it's only gotten worse since. So even the data is already a little bit old and numbers are going to be a lot higher. Since the state shifted most of the region into the orange zone during Thanksgiving week, the number of people filing for unemployment benefits for the first time has doubled in Erie County and jumped by 43% in Niagara County. Workers across the Buffalo Niagara region are now losing their jobs at a pace that hasn't been seen here since the end of June, when the state was in the middle of the reopening process. And the effects of this are going to be widespread, and we're going to be feeling it for a long time. We, as a, as I've tried to point out as many times as possible, we were already entering into a recession back before the shutdown ever happened, and that just sped up the process and exacerbated a lot of existing conditions in our economy, in our housing market, and everything. And so now we are really going to feel the crunch of this. Because so many jobs are not coming back. And then because of these recent shutdowns, we're losing more jobs. And this is all during the holiday season. And so people are not going to be spending money like they would have in any other normal year. So retail is going to take a huge hit as it did we saw on Black Friday. So it's it's just this, the you know, the, the ball of shit continues to roll downhill. That's the simplest way to put it. And we're all at the bottom of the hill. So until, and, and that's the thing is, you think about it, we don't have the tools to stop this ball from rolling down the hill at us. We need people who have a lot more resources, like the federal government, to step in and build something to stop the ball from crushing us all. I'm going to stick with this metaphor as long as possible. Anyway, moving on to other COVID news, uh, the county eases quarantine rules for COVID infections in school. And this is just in today's paper. So if, if your children are going to school tomorrow, or if you work at a school, if, I do If you are worried about this, as you should be, this is what is going to be changing about the COVID infections in schools, the rules around those. So the Erie County Health Department has loosened the rules on who has to quarantine when there's a positive case of COVID-19 in school. Since September, the county has taken a conservative approach and ordered 14 days of quarantine for anyone who is in a classroom with an infected person for 60 minutes or more. But now, with lower transmission rates being found in the schools, Erie County has backed off those guidelines. Instead, it will require quarantine for anyone within six feet of an infected person for more than 10 minutes. So they don't mention masks or anything. It's just if you are within six feet of that person for 10 minutes or more, then you have to quarantine. And this, this is based on data they're saying, of course, that the transmissions in schools are lower. And this is something we've been hearing from other municipalities, other countries. But the problem is, is that you're putting staff at risk as well. You know, this is still going back to the idea that if we would just let, if we just paid people to stay home, make their children stay home just for a few weeks, this could have all been over and people would stop getting sick. But because they are so desperate to open the economy because, God forbid, the money stops moving around that they have to force all these things back open the best way they can. So they're being guided by the data, but the data is always backed by dollars. So that change should reduce the number of students and staff forced to miss out on in-person instruction, focusing just on those who came close to an infected person rather than everyone in the room. And the reason they did everyone in the room previously was because... Droplets stay in the air and they move around a room depending on the air circulation. So I guess what they're saying is that the children are not sharing it as much as they had originally thought they would. It may also keep schools from having to close temporarily because too many staff are forced to quarantine at home. Now, not everybody did this though. So just across the border in Niagara County, the health department consulted with school superintendents and made the decision to keep the 60-minute in the same room rule in place, said Daniel Stapleton, Niagara County's health director. Uh, So that's interesting. Niagara County is only yellow, uh, but Erie County is largely, quote unquote, in an orange zone, and we are loosening our restrictions in school rather than maintaining them. So a three-member epidemiology team from the Erie County Health Department reviewed the last three months of COVID data from schools, according to Gail Burstein and team found staff, not students, were overrepresented in the caseloads. We believe students are compliant with the rules, Burstein said. And staff, when they're taking breaks or having meetings with other staff, may let down their guard and may not adhere to all the safety protocols. So those words, may, are doing a lot of work in that sentence. And and they're just putting aside the fact that maybe just putting people back to work is going to increase the transmission. They don't have to be... Violating rules and taking off their masks to talk to other staff members, maybe just putting them back into school and and making them go to work is going to increase transmission. And this is true of everything because we've seen the cases continue to rise uh, as as people are forced back into their work. And now, Mark Polankar, Erie County Executive, puts out new graphs every single day showing the the most up to date data. We are seeing the spike. Stop! Uh, It it is we're we're seeing the curve now. That was back what we tried to do in the early months. We wanted to flatten the curve. We are on a on a curve at the moment. The second wave is slowly breaking, and we're rounding the corner at least. So things are looking better. But I don't want to do anything that could make it worse. And so, uh, as somebody who knows many people that work in schools, I am concerned for their safety and. And I don't like the idea of them being forced back to work in unsafe conditions, especially because all levels of government are trying to pass measures to block lawsuits against employers. So it's it's concerning. So this is speaking of schools. This is really really disturbing. This is from the New York Civil Liberties Union website, uh, the ACLU of New York. The company that makes the facial recognition system installed in Lockport, New York's public schools, admits its system is less accurate when used on black people. It claims the algorithm the system uses to identify people misidentifies black men twice as often as white men and misidentifies black women 10 times more often than white men. That's not exactly reassuring, but an independent audit of SN technologies system obtained by the NYCLU found that the real numbers are even worse. The audit said that the system misidentified black men four times more often than white men and black women 16 times more often. And so this is an ongoing problem in the world of technology, Silicon Valley, and it has been for years, but it's been flying under the radar largely because these stories don't get a lot of nationwide attention. And the problem is, is that When these, the algorithms, people think, oh, it's just a computer program. It can't possibly be racist, but those are written by people and people have their own inherent, maybe unknown biases. And those end up in these, in these algorithms, in these programs. Uh, One of the famous ones I saw maybe about a year ago was when they had those facial recognition technologies on a Snapchat or, you know, one of those apps where you hold it up to somebody's face and it puts something funny on their face. uh, And they did it to a black man who was standing there and nothing happened because it didn't recognize him as a person. And so we're seeing anything with facial recognition technology is going to be a problem, not just because it's very creepy Big Brother stuff, but because these inherent biases end up in the algorithms. And then these systems are completely racist. So the audit does not address the algorithm's accuracy on children, but multiple studies have found racial Recognition is particularly faulty when used on young people. These are written by adults, and they probably don't think about making sure the programs recognize smaller faces or different shaped faces. So, Documents we reviewed also show that the system has misidentified objects as guns. That's especially worrying because these types of misidentifications could lead to police officers being deployed to a school expecting a live shooter incident. Even if there is no actual shooter in these situations, police arriving expecting one has the potential to traumatize students and potentially put them in danger. So yeah, facial recognition technology in schools gets a big thumbs down from me and many other people who were trying to stop Lockport from putting this into effect in the first place. And we, we hate to say we told you so, but it's when it's blatantly obvious that things are not going to be what they say they are, you, know, you, you have to listen to the people who are telling you don't do it. Now moving into some political stuff. This is this was really inf- infuriating, to be honest. Uh, F- sheriff candidate says he'll refuse to enforce some laws. So I, I just to start, uh, the sheriff shouldn't even be an elected position. I think it's 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 not supposed to be political. And you know, putting aside whatever you feel about law enforcement, we shouldn't be trying to elect somebody to that position. It's it, you're politicizing something that is just going to end up with problems like this. You're, you're opening it up to people who, as long as we have a sheriff, it should be somebody who is qualified. And, and this person's obviously not. So when governor Andrew M Cuomo banned Thanksgiving gatherings of more than 10 people last month, Sheriff Timothy B Howard drew widespread attention by promising never to enforce the state, mandate and okay i was not surprised by that at all how are you actually going to enforce that nobody is going to send law enforcement officers to a house and arrest people for getting together it's just it's never going to happen nobody's going to do that the 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 negative press would be you never recover from that now local gun rights advocate steve falano has declared his candidacy for erie county sheriff next year with an even broader vow he will not enforce any laws he views as an unconstitutional infringement of personal liberties. So let's start at the beginning there. Local gun rights advocate, that's when you're already pretty sure what kind of person you're going to be getting. They're going to be far right. Uh, And second thing is that it is not a sheriff's job to determine whether a law is unconstitutional or not. They do not have that power. They are there to enforce laws, because they are law enforcement. And this is when you politicize something that you shouldn't be giving this kind of power to a sheriff. It's it's ridiculous that this is even a, a thing. So first and foremost, the platform will be non-enforcement of state edicts on various laws, he said Wednesday, citing a new ban on selling Confederate flags on state property, which Cuomo signed into law on Tuesday as an example. Now there's a couple things here. He says state Edicts on various laws, so he's actually avoiding the fact that he's just going to not enforce laws, right? That's his job is to enforce laws, and he's he's using extra words there to obfuscate and hide the fact that he's just not going to do his job if he doesn't want to. And of course, he gets to choose which laws he he wants to enforce or not. So we are giving uh, if he wins this election, we'd be giving this awesome power to a complete jerk, and it's ridiculous. Uh, And so. Now, this other one, the the Confederate flags on state property, I don't really care about people's First Amendment rights. I'm not going to get involved with that. But when it comes to the Confederate flags, I think this country did a terrible job after the Civil War of crushing out any lingering traitorous aspects. We, after like, you, you can't have a Nazi flag in Germany. You're just not allowed to. They are banned forever. Uh, and so when there's a civil war and the North, the Union, won the war, the, there should have never been Confederate flags allowed again. Yeah, they were traitors to the country, and any insignias or symbols or anything that has to do with them should be banned forever. So just putting that out there. Um, so it, it, as it stands, though, he's technically not wrong. This is an unconstitutional infringement on free speech. Uh, So he says, I think we're going to see more laws like that coming down the pike from this governor, especially as he continues to hold executive authority power, he added, and the sheriff should be resisting that. No, no, and the sheriff should not be resisting that because it's not the sheriff's job. And so he seeks to turn the office into a platform thwarting, thwarting, quote, unconstitutional, unquote, laws and executive orders. And this is extremely dangerous because that's not the job of of the office. We're seeing Stefan Mahilu do the same thing right now with his controller's office. He is not a a policy maker and neither is the sheriff. They do not have policy making capabilities. They are there in a it just a, a service capacity, if you will. They are there to carry out things that other other policies that are put in place that determine their jobs. I just I can't stand that. It's you know, obviously, politi- everything's political these days. Uh, that, that position should probably just be removed altogether and and just taken out of, out of democracy. It's either, oh, it's, it's just really aggravating. So staying with the politics, Kevin Hardwick mulls a 21 race for county controller. So we were just talking about Mikhailu and what an idiot he is. So, labeling the current Erie County Controller's Office unhinged, legislator Kevin R. Hardwick said Friday he is seriously exploring a Democratic candidacy in 2021 for the fiscal watchdog post. I'm really interested, although a bunch of pieces have to fall into place, but I think I could do a good job. Hardwick, a Republican-turned-Democrat from the city of Tonawanda, said he has been discussing a controller campaign with party leaders because the position has become partisan under Republican Stefan I. Mihailo Jr., the watchdog function of the office has given way to attacks on county executive Mark C. Poloncarz and other Democrats that Hardwick views as excessive. So this is, you know, the, the, the attacks on the executive, Mikhailu takes those to the extreme because he is a complete idiot. But the comptroller's job is to be a watchdog. That's That's correct. So Stefan and the whole office have become so partisan that all they do is pump out social media stuff. That's bizarre, he said. In the end, you want Erie County government to work. Mikhailu has held the Comptroller's Post since winning a special election in 2012 and cruised to victory in two subsequent elections, a significant accomplishment in an overwhelmingly Democratic county. And that is true. It is impressive that he has stayed in that office. Uh, But Timothy Howard is also a Republican, very conservative Republican, who continues to win countywide office as the the sheriff, and he's won it for years. So Erie County is very strange, where the Democrats greatly outregister, register, greatly outnumber the Republicans, but they still can't clamp down on these countywide seats like we think they should. I, I wonder how much of that is because people remember from uh, Stefan Mikhailu from being on TV, and they don't actually know what kind of person he is. I think that is certainly changing. And the, the rest of this paragraph kind of points that out. Uh, so, But he finished third in a three-way GOP primary for the 27th Congressional District in June, and several sources report his stature has diminished among party leaders whom he targeted for criticism after they endorsed Chris Jacobs for the race. So he has definitely tried to take up that far right lane in the local GOP and tried to raise his profile, his political profile, that way. But I think he is staring down the end of his political career at this point. There's talk of him trying to go maybe for the uh, town supervisor of, of Hamburg because that gentleman is, is retiring re- retiring at the end of his term. But he he has become a complete toxic personality in Western New York, and I'm not sure if we should expect him to, to stick around much longer, uh, at least in the public view, like he is as a controller. Speaking of... Stefan Mikhailu in in public view, there was an incident yesterday, where there was a protest where people brought body bags to to try to raise awareness for, you know, COVID and evictions and a whole bunch of other things. And, of course, some right wing groups, some militiamen showed up, and they were on the other side of Niagara Square. And then there were some I, I don't know. I don't want to call them anything because I'm not sure exactly how they would identify, but the, there were some leftists, I guess, in, in this side of, of Niagara Square. So the, from the video I've seen, Mikhailu pulled his car into the square, you know, up on the on the inner ring brick walkway around the monument and parked it. And then and this is this is where my I put on my lawyer hat here because I have to look at this as objectively as possible. When, when Mikhailu gets out of his car, one of these um, you know, leftist people immediately gets in his face and is very aggressive toward him, and that is a problem because when you when you think about what the law says, yes, Stefan, Stefan Muhailu is an awful person, and I would love nothing more to punch him in the face, but you can't do that because that's against the law and it's bad. Um, so when this person got in his face. He walked over and kind of called the militia people over, who then got into the, the, the leftist's face and punched. And, and I heard there was a knife wielded at some point, And there are pictures of a gentleman who had been bleeding after the, after the fight with the, with the militiamen. And so those people are obviously going to be violent. That's what they thrive on. That's what they like. And so I, I, I would caution people in the future. If you see somebody like Stefan Mihailu, just let him go. Just yell at things, yell things at him from a distance. But if you get in somebody's face, you know, the law says they can reasonably, if they feel concerned for their safety, they can react. And and that that is just not, you don't want to give them any ammunition. And so the, anybody who watches that, they can find what they like or what they want to see in that video. So... All I'm saying is is don't give them any reasons. They already have all the, the reasons that they think they have in the world to be violent. Don't give them any more. Um, so that's all I wanted to say about that. So a few more news stories here. The coalition urges Buffalo Police to end traffic unit use civilian enforcement. And this is going back to the idea of defunding the police. When we say defund the police, we're talking about things like this, right? So following news this week that the Buffalo Police Department is disbanding its traffic division, a local coalition of advocates for defunding the police are calling for the city to stop police enforcement of traffic altogether. Instead, the Fair Fines and Fees Coalition suggested Thursday during a virtual video news conference that the city form a civilian traffic enforcement department whose members would be unarmed. Right? Taking... The weapons out of a situation immediately de-escalates. The group also called for the city to transfer the police officers who were in the traffic division to other civilian jobs within City Hall or eliminate the positions completely. Members said the money saved could go toward traffic calming design measures such as creating protected bicycle lanes and making driving lanes narrower, which encourages safer, slower driving as opposed to penalizing drivers. And the other point that, this, this coalition likes to make is not everybody is punished the same way by a fine or a fee. So punishable by a fine simply means legal if you're rich. Uh, a $30 parking ticket means a lot different to somebody who has a million dollars in the bank than to somebody who has a hundred dollars in the bank, right? A $30 ticket for some person could be the thing that ruins their life because maybe they have very, very shoestring budget. And that $30 parking ticket, they can't pay it because they are really, really tight right now. And so they let it go. But then it becomes forty-five dollars and then it becomes ninety dollars. And then they send it to collections. And then there's a mark on your license. And then if you get pulled over for rolling through a stop sign, then they see your license is suspended. Then you end up getting arrested. And it's just a thirty dollar parking ticket could be the the thing that just ruins somebody's life. And it's just it's and it always hits the lower income communities. In an unfair way, so we have to stop. We stop getting. You have to get away from this stuff. It's, it's raising money for the city on the backs of lower income people. So the coalition, made up of members of groups including the WNY Law Center, Partnership for the Public Good, Go Bike Buffalo, and WNY Peace Center, wants the city to curtail the use of ticketing and fines. Instead of extracting millions of dollars from the poorest communities, that money should go into just streets, said Jolanda Hill, a paralegal with the WNY Law Center. The groups also say that transferring police officers to districts likely won't save much money, right? So this is defunding the police. We have to put money into things that will alleviate the problem in the first place. And I think of if we have a police officer hiding and then somebody speeds past them, they go out and get them why don't they just sitting out in the open because people then slow down and they don't speed so it it's just you uh, it's 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 um we have to get away from punishing people rather than trying to prevent the problems in the first place and to to the point they're talking about bike lanes and protected uh some you know barriers so that uh, people don't hit people on bicycles because it's, it's a bigger problem in other cities, I will say, especially in New York City, about people on, on bikes being killed by drivers. But it's always an issue, and it's always a safety issue. And there was a story recently where they put up some barriers to separate cars from bikes on a street. And so many cars were hitting the barriers that they took the barriers out. So it was working. That was working. It was saving lives because people were hitting the barriers. If the barriers weren't there, they would have been drifting into the bike lane. So it's it's we we, we build so much of our world around automobiles and it needs to stop. That's that's the basic truth there. So a few more things here. Uh, Uniland scraps trade hub plan for solar panel farm in South Buffalo. So not a huge story or anything, but I'm just bringing it up to point out that when they announced this this trade hub plan. It was everywhere in the news. It was being tweeted out by every single local official who had anything to do with it. Everybody was touting this amazing thing. It's going to be such a game changer. And now that they're scrapping it, the only thing I've seen is this little article in the Buffalo News on page B4. So none of those elected officials were tweeting about it that I've seen. And it's just they will use as much as possible to say, look at the things I'm doing for the region, look at all the jobs this is going to create. I'm helping create jobs, but now they're going to switch to a solar panel farm, and they might not even do that. So, it's you, we, this is the problem when you focus on on business before people, right? Because it doesn't always work out. They 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 put all their eggs into this basket. And the land, it says, the land which consists of polluted fill material is part of the former Hanna Furnace site, and would have to be remediated under state supervision prior to anyone undertaking almost any development project. The soil conditions would require deep foundations, and so they should have known or must have known this back when they announced the plan. And so now to say, ah, nuts, we can't do it. It's 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 just really disingenuous, and they're they're you know playing keep away. Um, and it makes me think of of the that that Elmwood building recently, that old house where this company bought it out of out of foreclosure and then sat on it for a year and then threw up their hands and said, "Oh, it's going to cost too much money to fix it up. We just want to knock it down." And it's just so it's so fake. It's so fake. They this was their plan all along. So next one is a tech training set for workers hit by pandemic. Local residents hurt economically by the COVID-19 pandemic can sign up for free technology and digital skills training designed to improve their job prospects. The WNY Tech Skills Initiative, created by a coalition of partners, including M&T Bank, will offer virtual courses and workshops to teach skills in demand from employers. The goal is to train individuals interested in tech careers, as well as those who want to develop their digital skills for jobs in other fields. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because those jobs are, these skills are in demand from employers. So this is a basic supply and demand, right? If there are a few people who have this very niche specialized skill, those people can demand higher wages because the companies are, are more desperate for them to work for them. So that's, that's good, it's good for the worker because they have a specialized skill. Now, if you start to train other people in that skill, now there's more people going for the same number of jobs. These, these jobs are not just going to magically double or triple. So when you're flooding the market with more people trained in the same skill, it's going to necessarily depress wages for that skill. It makes me think of when when everybody said, "Oh, we should." Everybody, uh, it was a lot of liberals and Democrats. Maybe five to ten years ago, were talking about having X miners, you know, coal miners. We should teach them how to code. Well, the problem with that is, coding is like I said, a specialized skill, and if you it, it's it's a good paying skill for for certain areas right now. And if you start training new people on that, you are necessarily going to uh, increase the competitiveness in that field, drive down wages. So, it, it's 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 is a very cynical way to control the market and depress wages and save money. Uh, so the new program is part of the tech academy that m and is launching as part of its tech hub at Seneca One Tower. m and is working with a company called General Assembly to serve as its educational partner for the tech academy. The Tech Skills Initiative will work with community organizations to identify and support potential students for the program. There will be a focus on people facing job losses or reduction of work hours due to COVID-19 and groups with historically low representation in tech, women, people of color, and veterans. The Tech Skills Initiative will teach skills such as data analysis, digital marketing, and software engineering. And so I'm not trying to say that people shouldn't try to do this because if you don't have a job, you don't really have much of a choice. You have to do something. And if you're one of the first ones in, maybe that means you get one of the first jobs, your wages will be really high. But over time, you know, th- this is something that I personally experienced when I left law school because over the past 20 to 30 years, law schools have been ramping up on the number of people they're taking into their classes and they're just churning out lawyers. They're churning out people who have graduated from law school. And then when when the 2008 crash happened, there are all these people that lost jobs. And so now there's twice as many lawyers fighting for the same number of jobs and they can lower the wages because whoever's going to take the lowest salary gets the job. And this is the, the continuing problem of Of neoliberal economics and the trickle down that we have to give money, tax breaks to the job creators because then they will pay the wages. But it has been proven false over and over and over again. There was just the article that came out where uh, they did a study and said, oh, 50 years of tax breaks did not trickle down. And then everybody that I know is like, yeah, duh, we've been telling you that for 50 years. So, it's time to get away from these old models of economics. It's time to move towards socialism. That's the simplest way I can put it. It's, you know, it's right there in the name. Socialism means it, everything is, is used and the profits are used to benefit the people social. Whereas capitalism, capital money, it is used to benefit the people who already have money. So we have to get away from this, this awful capitalist system. It's, it's killing our planet. It's killing our people. Uh, and speaking of wonderful, wonderful capitalism, this is the last little news piece. It's just really, when I saw it the other day, I just almost, almost exploded. Spectrum says it will double internet speeds in Buffalo, several other markets. So yeah, they're just going to do it. Spectrum says it has doubled the starting download speed of its internet product from 100 to 200 megabytes per second in 17 markets across the US. That includes Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, Albany, and Elmira in New York State. Spectrum says the faster 200 megabytes speeds are available now to new Spectrum internet customers, and the company will automatically increase speeds for current residential customers with new internet packages in those markets during the first quarter of 2021. Spectrum says that a small percentage of current internet customers will need new modem, which is available at no additional charge, to receive the faster speeds. The company also says there will not be a price change for the higher speeds as they are rolled out to existing companies—I'm sorry, existing customers— This is really interesting because why did they do this, right? It just doesn't say why. It doesn't say why they couldn't do it before. It just says that they're going to make everybody's internet twice as good. And they're not just doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. And they're not doing this because their technology updated. They always had this capability. But you know what else they had? They had a monopoly in all these areas. And so that monopoly has been slowly being chipped at by a company called Greenlight. Now I'm not going to sit here and say Greenlight's amazing and perfect and everything, but Greenlight has been slowly moving into the Rochester area and taking over neighborhood by neighborhood and they're they're putting their their fiber optics into those neighborhoods and it's chipping into Spectrum's market share because the the large corporations have a lot of non-compete. It's obviously not written down anywhere because that would be illegal. But there's a lot of non-compete going on between Telephone companies like Verizon and Sprint often don't try to muscle into each other's territory, Uh, especially in these cable and internet companies. I have lived in Buffalo, the city of Buffalo proper, for about a decade in different neighborhoods. And I always get things in the mail from Verizon Fios saying, hey, you should sign up. It's a really good program. And every single time I've called them in any house I've ever lived in, South Buffalo, uh, Upper West Side, you know, Ashland Bryant. Every single time I've called Verizon Fios to see if I can get it, they say we don't offer it in your neighborhood because they don't try to compete. And so Spectrum has had an unofficial monopoly on this entire area. And now Greenlight's showing up, though. Greenlight is, has identified neighborhoods in Buffalo that they're going to start rolling out their internet. And that is really exciting because it is going to capitalists love to tell you that markets are competitive and that is good for everybody, but it never works like that in reality because they know just as well as everybody else that having a monopoly means you can charge whatever you want and you don't have to even improve your product. But now that the monopoly is threatened, Spectrum has to do something about it. So they're going to make their product better. They're going to make it faster and they're going to do it for free because they're losing money. And that's what the golden rule is, is it's always about the money. So yeah, yeah, lots of news this week, but I wanted to make sure that I got to everything there. And we're going to finish up with just a little talk about some sports and a couple pieces of opinion writing that I thought were either really good or really bad that I wanted to share with you. So yes, the Bills won last night. They destroyed the Denver Broncos. They are the AFC East champions. And I am pretty excited about that. I know I, if, if you want to hear more about my thoughts from the game, you like I said, you can check out the Patreon, but I am ready for the playoffs. I am really, really ready. It's time to put aside that goal. And we, we, we had the longest drought of, of non-playoffs seasons, right? And we broke it. Sean McDermott came in here, turned the team around, we made the playoffs, right? And then we went back to the playoffs again last year, and we lost again. And then we are the winners of the AFC East this year. So we keep accomplishing new goals, but now we've got to win a damn playoff game. And I really like that in a locker room after the game last night, Josh Allen was circled up with his teammates and he said, you know, they're wearing the t-shirts, they've got the hats on, the AFC East all over it. And he said, I want the one that says effing Super Bowl champs. i love my quarterback to say that because he knows that the goal was not to win the AFC East. The goal isn't even to win a playoff game. It's to win all the playoff games. So next step for this team, we have to shoot higher now. We can't just be happy with the AFC East championship. I'm going to love it. I'm going to revel in it, but the Patriots have won the last, what, I don't know, Baker's dozen in a row. So yeah, it's time to shoot higher. We have to act like the big boys. We have to we have to shoot higher. Another disappointing... Thing was, the end of the UB Bulls football season. I, I'm not sure the season's over. They're probably going to be bowl games, uh, but they did not win the MAC division or league championship game, which is kind of strange because they were just walking all over most teams this year. They only had to play five games, but they went undefeated. And running back Jarrett Patterson was in the Heisman Trophy. Conversation because he ran for over a, th- a thousand yards in only five games. Uh, and they lost the MAC title game to Ball State 38 28. It was sloppy football at the end of the first half where they gave up a couple quick touchdowns to Ball State. And that was pretty much the end of the game. They never really got back into it after that. And their usual high flying or ground to pound offense was, was shut down. So a disappointing end there. It really looked like they were ready to take another big step and take that championship and then maybe garner a, a vote or two in the college football rankings. They, they cracked into the top 25 for the first time ever this season, and they just couldn't follow through when it mattered most. I think, uh, Mike Harrington of the Buffalo news had his piece on it and he think he, he summed it up pretty bad, uh, pretty well that it was just a bad game at the wrong time. Hey, they're having good games all year and then they just they laid an egg right when they weren't supposed to. The worst time to do it. So, that is unfortunate, of course. Now, there are a couple uh, a few opinion pieces I want to touch on here. So, the first one is from a few days ago, Rod Watson from the Buffalo News. He's a really really good writer. I almost always agree with him, and this one is open container law repeal should be a no-brainer. So, He says in the scope of major police reforms being demanded across the nation, this one may not sound like much repeal Buffalo's open container law. Surely there are more important issues, but maybe not because upon closer review, it's clear that this law is a window into all that is wrong with policing in America. Its enforcement is discriminatory, arbitrary, and creates needless and potentially hostile interactions with citizens that can poison relations between cops and African-Americans or other people of color. So using the freedom of information law, repeal advocates got data on the number of citations issued in 2018 and 2019 for violating the city code provision that prohibits, quote, drinking in an unlicensed public place or vehicle in a public place, unquote. Aidan M. Ryan, a law firm strategic communications advisor, mapped the addresses of those cited and, not surprisingly, found that enforcement is concentrated in the heavily black portions of the city, such as the Martin Luther King Jr. Park neighborhood. He contrasted that with the lack of enforcement at venues like Shakespeare in Delaware Park or the St. Patrick's Day Parade along Delaware Avenue. So places where people drink like crazy. Of the 39 people busted for having an open container of alcohol or drinking in a public place, 32 were black. That's 82% in a city where blacks are only about a third of the population. That is just wildly disparate impact of this on on neighborhoods is just stark. There's nothing else to say about that. It's a law that is supposed to be equal on its face, but is being carried out in a very racially discriminatory way. Beyond the number of citations, which may not seem like a lot, Ryan notes the larger and chilling impact such a policy and its uneven enforcement can have. He recalls a conversation with somebody from the MLK Park neighborhood who marveled at going to Delaware Park and seeing people openly consuming alcohol with no thought of being cited. Yet in his neighborhood, people knew they couldn't even open a beer on a hot afternoon without looking over their shoulders. And that's because they are over-policed. We send our police to certain neighborhoods, and it's this vicious cycle of, well, if we send more police there, there'll be fewer crimes, but they're going to over-police that neighborhood, and then they find more crime. And this is borne out in the data over and over and over again. So Rod says, let's be clear. We're not talking about letting people get drunk in public. There already are other laws against that. We're talking about people being selectively penalized for having a beer or glass of wine, some of whom can least afford fines maxing out at $157.50, while their fellow citizens in other neighborhoods are exempted. The open container law seems to be based on the broken windows theory of policing popularized in New York City and elsewhere in the 1980s. Adherents claimed that cracking down on these so-called quality-of-life crimes would, in turn, reduce more serious crime. The theory has since fallen from favor. As critics note, it merely ensnares more people in targeted neighborhoods with no commensurate impact on crime. In fact, the encounters and ticky-tacky charges it spawns can lead to tragedies like those that befell George Floyd, Eric Garner, and others. Yes, the broken windows theory is garbage. It's absolute nonsense. And I remember when I first learned about it back in law, uh, in, in my undergraduate schooling, I was a criminal justice major at RIT. I thought, oh yeah, this this sounds like it makes sense. And this is yeah, 2004, 2005. And Rochester had been going through uh, about a decade of really, really high murder rates and crime rates, and I thought, yeah, this makes sense. Uh, yes, if you put a, a car with broken windows into a neighborhood, everything deteriorates around that car because if you don't care enough to fix the car, you don't care enough about the neighborhood. And that made sense to me in that moment. But then you realize that, no, if you leave a car with broken windows in a neighborhood and it doesn't get fixed, that probably means that there's a lot of poverty in that neighborhood. And poverty is the number one predictor of crime. And so if you address the poverty underlying the problems in that neighborhood, then you don't have to worry about a broken window. It's just not the issue that they're making it out to be. So really good stuff from Rod Watson there. Now and this one is from Bob McCarthy. He does the he's the political beat guy for the Buffalo News. And it's uh, from today. The pandemic's petitioning threat. So this is a problem that I ran into last year when I, I petitioned to run for assembly, and of course the shutdown threw everything into disarray. So as we here at the politics column often emphasize, the uh, the Democrats' 2018 takeover of the state senate ranks as one of the most important milestones in New York political history. All kinds of changes stemmed from a capital now dominated by Dems, including a, resi- a revised political calendar that moved party primaries from September to June. Now, the reason they did that, the quoted reason, was they wanted to match the primaries up with the federal primaries. I don't know if there's a huge difference there. If We have to probably get some more years of data to see if, if the turnout is different, but this is their stated reason. So when Democrats ran through those changes in early 2019, helpless Republicans could only wail and gnash their teeth. How is anybody going to get petitions signed in the winter, in the snow, in the Adirondacks? They moaned. I, I don't remember that really happening, but okay. Uh, indeed, opening doors in the cold to party workers circulating designated petitions remains a problem, but it pales compared to opening doors during a pandemic. So I will say one thing, uh, when I was out in February and early March before everything closed down, I actually didn't have a huge problem getting people to open the doors, even in the coldest of weather. weather. And people were really, really generous with with their time. And and even in the, the 17 degree day, that was the first day I went out knocking on doors, people were okay with that. It wasn't as bad as I expected, but me, the person walking around for hours in the cold, that was not good. We should not be making people do that. So now political honchos like Erie County conservative chairman Ralph Larigo wonder how the state will handle the situation with the 2021 political season fast approaching. Right now, parties are slated to begin carrying petitions for June primaries on February 23rd, which is why candidates for major offices like Sheriff are already maneuvering for party endorsements. Larigo calls it a terribly undoable situation. I don't see people opening their doors to sign several pieces of paper, he said. This is certainly going to be a concern. Uh, when we were in the middle of our petitioning back in March and the, we were always waiting for things to get shut down because we could see COVID coming. It was always this thing that was down the road, but you hadn't gotten there yet. You could see it in the distance. You could see it coming. And so then they cut the, they cut the number of signatures we had to get. We, we, We had the team ready to get hundreds and we, we were able to, to get on the ballot and everything. But there would have been no way to get signatures after the day that we stopped doing it, which was uh, right in the middle of March. And it's going to be an issue for for this coming year. Is Are people going to trust each other enough to open the doors and sign pieces of paper? I imagine many will not want to use your pen. If they do, they'll have to get with their own pen, which is fine. It, but there there might be a huge depressed turnout. I'm not in turnout, but the number of signatures will be depressed because people will not want to do that. They're not, they're not feeling safe. There's no way to say what will be looking like as far as COVID on February 23rd and going forward from there. But I can imagine there's gonna be a lot of people who just won't do it at all. And and no, but nothing can change their mind. And that's, that's certainly reasonable. I wouldn't blame them at all. So it all prompts the chairman's suggestion that Governor Andrew Cuomo uses emergency powers to return the state's primary date to September for this year, allowing petitions to be carried beginning in June, which would be great because that's when the weather is warmer and the infection rate will be lower just naturally because people will be able to be outside more and distance from each other. And also the vaccine. So, you know, and maybe in the next sentence, and maybe just maybe a new vaccine will start taming the coronavirus. And in parentheses, Cuomo's office did not return inquiries on his plans. And this has been his MO. He really waits until the last second. He never tip, tips his hand or lets anybody know what he might be thinking about doing. When it comes to this stuff, it's always kind of last second. Oh, and here's what I'm going to do. Especially with the uh, extending Eviction moratoriums, or, or or when he was talking about what to do with schools, he was always waiting until the last second to, to get news out on those things. So, we need to find out soon because there are a lot of people who are going to be relying on that information. So, now the last thing I, I know I pick on this guy a lot because he is one of the dumbest people I've ever read, but the Buffalo News keeps printing his articles. So, I'm going to keep telling you how stupid they are. It is, of course, Mark Thiessen, and it is <laughs> the the headline giving trump credit for the vaccine is the best way for biden to unite the country i i can't imagine that so this, this is always goes back to what i'm saying is these people tell you that this is this is what somebody should do because that's what i want but can you can you really think that anybody any any average republican voter would give a two dams if joe biden came out tomorrow and said thank you donald you've done a great job with something they don't care. They absolutely don't care. This is only for Mark Thiessen and his small group of, of friends. That's that's who is talking here. He's not speaking on behalf of anybody but himself and a few elites in Washington. So it says, Joe Biden promised in his victory speech to unite us here at home and told Trump supporters that he wanted to put away the harsh rhetoric, lower the temperature, and see each other again. There's one simple way he could show he is serious give President Donald Trump credit for the stunning success of Operation Warp Speed. I don't think it's very stunning. Uh, when you dump a bunch of money into, into research, you can get some results. That's just how it works sometimes. So on Monday, the first Americans were vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2. This is the greatest public health achievement in history. Uh, I, would take, I would take exception with that statement as well. I can think of at least a hundred things that are more important than, uh, the first vaccinations. Uh, so hey, yes, we're vaccinating people. It is momentous. I wouldn't say it's even close to the greatest public health achievement until now. The record for the fastest vaccine development was four years. Operation warp speed did it in nine months. That is impressive, but let's, let's ask why they got it done so quickly. So The genius of Operation Warp Speed was the decision to run the vaccine development process in parallel rather than sequentially. The Trump administration invested about $10 billion in eight vaccine candidates, purchasing hundreds of millions of doses of vaccines before they were approved, clearing away regulatory hurdles and putting a four-star general, Gustav Perna, in charge of logistics and distribution. So the administration pledged $1.95 billion for the purchase and distribution of 100 million doses of Pfizer's vaccine, which began this week. It also provided $955 million to support the development of Moderna's vaccine and another $1.5 billion to support large-scale manufacturing and distribution of the vaccine. It also pledged to purchase 100 million vaccine doses each from AstraZeneca, $1.2 billion, Johnson & Johnson, $1.46 billion, and Novavax, $1.6 billion, all of which are in final clinical trials. So yes, these companies just got an amazing amount of money dumped into their bank accounts to get this done. So I think if anything we can take away from this is that what else are we not solving? If we just throw a bunch of money at things and we solve it really quickly, what else could we do? why haven't we solved cancer yet? I'm not trying to say that I know enough about this to really opine on it, but imagine if we just threw every single possible resource we had at solving all the different types of cancer. How many of them could we scratch off the list of, you know, huge problems? I, I, it's, it's just, it's wild. So this guy is, is, conservative as they come while he's acknowledging that the federal government just dumped a whole bunch of money into solving a problem and it solved it quickly right so this is exempt this is against everything he stands for everything he believes in but because his big wet boy did it he's going to tout it as a, a major achievement and the number one thing that's ever happened in health so yeah it's just complete ridiculousness so nothing like this has ever happened in the history of modern medicine so he goes back to that As my American Enterprise Institute colleague, so AEI is a super conservative group, former FDA chief Scott Gottlieb told me, we've never really had this level of development work undertaken over such a short period of time with so many successes. This is a singular achievement. I can't think of any historic proxy. So why has Biden refused to acknowledge it? On Monday night, in a speech hailing his electoral college victory, he ended by noting that we had just passed a, quote, grim milestone, unquote, of 300,000 COVID deaths. But he said nothing about the historic vaccinations that were administered that same day. It was like ignoring the moon landing. Well, uh, as you just pointed out, there were 300,000 COVID deaths before the vaccinations. And how many of those were preventable that your big wet boy president didn't do anything to prevent? So it's not like ignoring the moon landing. It would be like ignoring the moon landing if you had sent 100 spaceships to the moon and 99 of them exploded on the way and the hundredth got there. Like that, that That's what you're thinking of there, Mark. So Biden has criticized Trump's pandemic response failures so why not give the president credit for this unadulterated success? Because he doesn't deserve it. It's just a simple question. Uh, because that would mean acknowledging that for all Trump's flaws in managing the pandemic. Flaws, flaws. He's, he's, he's saying 300,000 deaths, those are just flaws. So he's also responsible for ending it. This, this pandemic is not over. He's not responsible for ending a pandemic. It is still happening. There are still 3,500 people dying per day. And this guy's saying that he's ending the pandemic because a couple vaccinations went out. You ridiculous human being! And he's saying that Biden is saving that credit for himself. I am just everything about this is offensive. This guy is a terrible, terrible writer, and he is also very unserious and he is full of crap. He's always just trying to uh, hide hide how how ridiculous his his opinions are. He he likes to sound smart, but it's it's once you start digging a little deeper and scratching the surface of these things, it is just so easy to see that this guy should not be listened to. It. But man, the Buffalo News loves printing his articles. Oh, okay, that's everything for today. So, thank you for listening. Please rate and subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can follow on Twitter at B-L-O-Z-E-R-O podcast or email at B-L-O-Z-E-R-O podcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or episode ideas. And finally, if you like what's going on here, please go to patreon.com slash B-L-O-Z-E-R-O podcast and contribute to the show. So that's everything, like I said. And yeah, go Bills, and we'll see you next time.